like to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 1, and we'll read verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. This message tonight is called Evangelical Coagulation. Most of you would have had the experience of cutting yourselves and when blood comes out, as if blood does come out of your skin, you'll notice something strange happens to that blood. It comes together, it solidifies, it, it thickens. That process is called coagulation. And the active ingredient in the coagulative process is an ingredient called thromboplastin, believe it or not. Without thromboplastin, you'll bleed to death, commonly called hemophilia. You'll be a hemophiliac if you have no thromboplastin within your body. Are you still with me? Stay with the simplicity that's in Christ. The body of Christ is in a healthy state. There will be a coagulation into a unity of purpose and a unity of mind. And with that thought in mind, let's read Philippians 1, 27. Paul says to the Philippians, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit and in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. What should the church be striving together for in a unity of purpose, in a unity of mind, in a coagulated way, for the faith of the gospel? That is what we should be striving for. And just as faith cannot be separated from the gospel, that is, you cannot partake of the gospel unless you have faith, so evangelism cannot be separated from the church of the living God. Evangelism is the life's blood of the church. If evangelism drains from any church, that church dies. And if you have no evangelistic zeal tonight, I pray that God will place the spiritual thromboplastin within your very heart, that you might coagulate and join in a sense of purpose with God's people and reach this world for Christ. About four years ago, I was on my way into town to preach the gospel as I usually do in the lunch hours and I stepped out of my office and felt a cold easterly wind coming off the sea. But I stood there, I said to myself, too cold to preach the gospel today, but I had... Uh, I committed myself to going into town. I said I'd take a young lady in, so I went into the square, and as I got into the square, I noticed a group, a rock group, was standing up on the other side of town, other side of the square. So I went across to them. I said to the guy that was leading the group, I said, how long until you guys start playing? He turned and said to me, mm, quarter of an hour, 20 minutes. And I turned from him and said out aloud, mm, quarter of an hour, hardly worth preaching the gospel. Then I looked in front of me, about four feet from my feet, was a piece of paper. And I reached down and picked up that piece of paper, and as I picked it up, I got a surprise. It was a page out of somebody's Bible. Now, I've been preaching the square for years. I'd never seen a page of a Bible floating around the square. And I picked it up, oh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I looked down on it, and I saw the words, Yea, necessity is laid upon me. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. <laughs> and in one quick little minute, I began to do a little calculation. I thought to myself... Of all the people in the square to find a page floating around on a windy day, it was me. And I looked down, I saw the page number on that Bible 
was 1,063. And I began to think of all the pages to fall out of someone's Bible. That page fell out. And I, of all people, found it when I was in the frame of mind that I was in. I tell you, coincidence didn't enter my mind. I ran, grabbed my little ladder, jumped up on it and preached like I never had before. And from that time, when I think of that incident, I've realized within my spirit that evangelism is on the heart of God. Evangelism is on the heart of God. God desires that all men come to the knowledge of the truth. He desires that none perish. None perish. Some years ago, on the Brighton car park, the old Brighton car park, there was a couple necking. I'm sure you know what necking is. And they were necking up the front in this car, and these bikies come up on the car park. And they thought they'd have this couple on. So they came up behind the car and they began rocking the car and shaking it. And they grabbed the bumper bar and they went like that. And the guy that was sitting in the driver's seat got so scared, he just turned the key on, put it in first and <coughs> off he went. They got home. You know what they found in their bumper bar? A human finger. Isn't that horrible? And they tore along to Christchurch Hospital. They went to the outpatients and sure enough, the guy was there without his finger. And that finger was sewn on and that finger was saved. That wasn't meant to be a pun. What I'm trying to say tonight, very hard, what I'm trying to say is that a severed finger or a severed member of the body will die unless it's connected to the life's blood. And that's the truth. And tonight, if you don't feel the pulse coming from the Father heart of God, the pulse for evangelism. Perhaps you are severed from the body or perhaps you are still dead in your sins. And tonight you say, but I love God. I love the Lord. I worship the Lord. Well, I say if we worship God and we're going to lift our hands up in worship to God, let's be sure we reach our hands out in witness for God. If we have cried, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew within me a right spirit, let us also cry, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. He who has cried, I sought the Lord, and he delivered me from all my fears, also should cry, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Evangelism should be an overflow of gratitude. David in Psalm 51 speaks of the joy of thy salvation. Psalm 89, verse 15, David says, Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. Blessed are the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. That joyful sound is the sound of salvation. Do you know that joyful sound? Many of us don't really understand what that word salvation means. If you look up salvation in the dictionary, you'll say, see that it says salvation is the fact or the state of being saved from the consequences of sin. That's what salvation is. The fact or the state of being saved from the consequences of sin. Now, let me your imagination for a minute. You've gone mountain climbing. You're way up in the mountains and you're a good climber. You're an expert climber. And you come to this cliff face and it is a very steep cliff face. And you stand there, you've got your backpack on, and you look at this cliff face, and you look at the ledge, and it's eight inches wide. Some places it's nine inches, some places seven inches. And you think, can I make it across to the other side? And you confidently affirm, I can. I have the skill to do that. I know I can get across to the other side. So you begin to get out on that ledge, and you look down, and it's a 2,000 foot drop onto jagged rocks. And you hold on to that cliff face, your hands are shaking a bit, but you're saying to yourself, I can do it. I have the ability to do it. I know I can do it. I'm almost there. And then you hear a sound. 
You think, what's that sound? A rumbling sound. And you hold on for dear life. And you hear rumble, rumble. You lean across the cliff edge and rocks just slide over your head. And you close your eyes in terror. You think, I've got to lean forward. And you open your eyes and you see a sight. A sight that frightens you. You look ahead of you and you see that ledge has been broken away by those rocks. And you think, oh, I'll have to go back. And you look back and the same thing this side. All that ledge is just broken away. And you stand there in terror. And you think, what on earth am I going to do? My God, I'm going to die up here. And you look down and there's jagged rocks 2,000 feet below. You think, what will I do? And you stand there for two days, terrified. And you just stand there. And you think, what will I do? Will I just jump off this edge backwards and die down below? Or will I just hold out and your body begins to dehydrate and you begin to feel your knees go weak and you feel yourself beginning to go faint. And you think, oh my God, this is it. And you look down and you know that any second, any second, your body is going to be dashed to pieces on those rocks below. And you're just standing there thinking, this is it. And then you hear a sound that brings joy to your heart. And you look up and you see a helicopter coming towards you. And through tear-filled eyes you see a, a, a pilot begin to wave to you. And then you look up and you see... Out of that helicopter comes a rope ladder. And you reach out and with all the strength you've got, you grip that rope ladder. That helicopter has become your salvation. That helicopter is your deliverance. And I think back, 12, 13 years when I was a non-Christian. Oh, I thought I could make it across the edge of life. That, that fine little ledge there. And I come out quite confidently thinking I could make it through life. And then as I stood there, I saw the cliff edge had gone. And life became futile to me as I saw death waiting to consume me. And I tell you, I was filled with fear. I thought, there's no way out, there's no hope for me, I'm lost. I looked below those jagged rocks in a sense and saw there's nothing to do but wait until the jaws of death consume me. And I stood there in terror until the captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ, came. And I heard the joyful sound of the salvation of God. And Jesus let down that rope ladder of faith. And I tell you, I gripped it with all my grip and held on. And man, I am so thankful to be saved. I am so thankful to be off that ledge of futility, that ledge of death. And people say to me, religion is a personal thing. You've got to keep it to yourself. And I say, boy, that's true. If, you want to, if you've got a religion, you keep it to yourself. It's personal. But as for the gospel of salvation, Jesus said, shout it from the housetops. The Bible says, lift up your voice as a trumpet. And I tell you, I have heard the joyful sound of that helicopter salvation. And I'm going to shout out, there is a way past death. There is a way past futility. And that way is through faith in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. He has become my salvation. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Now, if you want, as a Christian, as you reach out and grab that rope ladder of faith, you can stay on that bottom run if you wish. You can stay on the bottom run of that ladder of faith if you wish. But if you do... If you stay on that ladder of faith under that helicopter, you're going to be subject to being tossed to and fro. You're going to be tossed by the wind, by the movement. You're not going to be stable. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4, verse 13, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God wants us to grow in grace. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lay in wait to deceive us. And God wants us to begin to climb that ladder of faith so that we become stable in Him. I'm going to read from the book of Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3. Paul says in regards to growing in grace or climbing that ladder of faith, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you brethren as it is fitting, because your faith 
groweth exceedingly. When Paul heard of the Thessalonians' faith beginning to grow, as he saw them beginning to climb that ladder of faith, he says, I'm bound to give thanks to God. This is a glorious thing. You see, the Christian life is one of growing. It's one of growing in maturity. The Bible says, let us go on to know the Lord. Jesus said, if you continue in my word. He said, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. Heaven isn't inside the straight gate. It's at the end of that narrow way. And God tells us that we need to grow in grace, to walk in Him. I don't know how I'm going to get over this one, but I'll give it a go. In the natural, you can tell somebody is maturing because they grow in stature. Isn't that right? If you've got a little kid and he begins to grow, you know he's maturing. He's growing. That's in the, in the natural. How do we know if someone is growing in the spiritual? How do you know if somebody is maturing? Well, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13, For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he's still a babe. But strong meat belongs to those who are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. What is the Bible saying? This is how you'll know Christian maturity. When somebody begins to discern what is good and what is evil. That's how you know Christian maturity. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Ephesians 5, verse 1. You may like to turn there with me. Paul begins to relate some things that are good and some things that are evil. Verse 3 of Ephesians 5, he says, But fornication and all uncleanliness and covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. And he says, For you know that no fornicator or unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now listen to what he says. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. And right down at verse 11, he says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. That's what God expects us to do as Christians. Reprove the works of darkness. And tonight I'd like to relate something I see as a key to reproving. A key to reproving is boldness. But how do you get boldness as a Christian? I'd just like to relate an instance. Uh, some years ago, four years ago, we began making a film called My Friends Are Dying, which is related on a book we published a little earlier. And as we were making the film, I thought, Lord, how am I going to get this film publicized? You see, the news media won't, publicize or, or use an item unless it is rotten news. It's got to be bad news before they'll put it on the tally. And I thought, how on earth can I make this film bad news? <laughs> to jump out of a plane, looking at the film on a viewer or something, it's flat on the ground, they'd come along and say, I'm going to film that. And I thought, how on earth am I going to do it, Lord? And then something happened which was really exciting. I sent my cameraman, John, into the square. I said, go and get some candid shots of people, just ordinary shots of people standing around. I went off to a meeting. Then I came back, and I was actually up with a friend of mine, a wizard of Christchurch, and we're having afternoon tea, friendly enemy, should I say. We're having afternoon tea. And uh, while we're having afternoon tea, Jack leaned across to me and says, boy, did you miss it today? See, there was an arts festival on in the square, which he was uh, comparing. And he said, a gang fight broke out between two rival gangs, the Black Power and a Mungrel Mob. He said, there was a television cameraman that got the whole lot on film. I said, was he about that high and curly black hair and a shoulder camera? He said, yeah. 
I thought, that's John. So I went running out of John, and sure enough, John had got the whole thing on film. That night, the police came along to a meeting I was taking. They interrupted the meeting and came in and seized that portion of film, and they used it as Supreme Court evidence. A lot of guys got arrested. And I said to John a little later, I says, what a pity that you didn't get the police cars arriving. And John says, yeah, I know. It was just so, uh, I was just so shaken by what I saw. I just didn't think to film the police arriving. He says, hang on a minute. I know. I'll just do something. I rang up the police, and I said, hey, uh, you know that film that we got? I says, would you do the arrival bit again? And the top policeman said, well, you scratched our back, we'll scratch yours. <laughs> so I had the thrill of standing in the square and watching two police cars, squad cars, weave in and out of traffic down the main street, Colombo Street, come tearing into the square, lay rubber right across the square, four policemen jump out and run into an empty square. <laughs> the guy got out and he says, how was that? I says, pretty good, you want to do it again? He says, right. <laughs> Praise God, 2,300 people came out to that premiere. 1,000 people had to be locked out. It was marvellous. We had to separate the black power upstairs and the mongrel mob downstairs. <laughs> we didn't want it to happen again. And sometime later, I was asked to go out to Paparoa Prison and, and show the film out there. And, and I thought, this is a marvellous opportunity. They didn't say it was a religious film. They called it an educational film. So they invited all the prisoners. They're all allowed to come out to see it. And out of about 240 prisoners, I think 180 guys came out that night. And three sections, three lots of 60 prisoners. I walked into the first se uh, session, and there was a guy there, the projectionist. I went up to him. I says, hi, what's your name? He says, Charlie. I thought, what else? And... Uh, <laughs> I says, uh, how long have you been here? He said, seven years. I says, oh, yeah, what for? He says, murder. Says, oh. <laughs> and the place was really packed full of really heavy dudes, murderers and all that. And anyway, I was sitting there, a 30-minute film, and as the film began to wound down, this great big, this great big uh, guard stood up at the end of the film, and as the guys were starting to shuffle, he said, stay where you are. Mr. Comfort's going to speak to you. And I thought, far out. <laughs> So I went up there and I spoke to them, preached to them for about a quarter of an hour, 20 minutes, had a marvellous time and then that lot went out and in came the next lot, 60 odd prisoners and they all sat down, the film went right through 30 minutes and the guy got up and said, stay where you are, Mr. Gumbert's going to speak to you. I jumped up again and had another session, I thought, this is really great. Then I went down and had a, a game of pool with one of the inmates because I'd seen the film before, three or four hundred times and... Um, <laughs> And I looked, 30 minutes is just about up. I thought, I'll be winding down now. So I thought, boy, this is good. Thank you, Lord. Walked in, I opened up the door, and I was like, right up the front, and all the guys are sitting there looking at the screen. And I thought, oh, it's winding down. Where's that big guard? Where's the big guard? He wasn't in there. I thought, Lord, what's going to happen? The film finished, and the guys started ruffling. I flipped the switch on, puffed my chest out, and the deep voice, I said, stay where you are. I'm going to talk to you. <laughs> they didn't move. Not one of them moved, I tell you. There is a key in Christianity, and that is to realize who you are. You see, my father's name is Ray Comfort Sr., believe it or not. When I was born, he was named after me at my birth. Uh, and as my father's son, it gave me certain rights. It gave me certain rights and privileges. But when I was born again, my father became the God of all comfort. <laughs> I became a son of God. The Bible says, to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And that gave me certain rights and certain privileges. All the promises of God became yea and amen for me. 
Now recently, about two or three weeks ago, I was asked to speak at Lincoln College. And I prayed about what to speak and I felt to speak on the subject of the occult. And I was kind of apprehensive. I thought to myself, oh boy, Lord, it always stirs up some sort of problem. And I was a little bit nervous. And the morning I wake up to go, woke up to go out there, a scripture kept coming back to my heart. And this was the scripture. The enemy shall not exact upon him. And I thought, strange, I don't even know what that means. And then it came back again. Five times that morning before I went out there, just come, and I looked it up, and I saw what the word exact means. That means, the enemy shall not outwit him, nor do violence to him. And I went out there confident, with a boldness in my heart, because I knew that if God be for me, nothing could be against me. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor do violence him. Now stay with me, here is another little analogy type thing, but I'm going to try and pull the strings in a minute. How does a traffic cop overtake you when you're violating the law? He's come along on his motorbike, there you are doing 70 k's in a 50 k area. What does a traffic cop do when he comes along? <laughs> he pulls alongside you, he's going alongside you, what does he do? Neep, neep. Could you pull over please? Could you pull your car over to the side of the road? So you pull over and think, who's this jerk? And he's, he pulls his bike and he's sitting on his bike and he, he looks around and he's biting his fingernails he's, and he's shaking like that and, and then he gets off his bike like a little mouse does he creep back and sort of go Could you wind your window down please? Does he do that? No! Oh, traffic cop sees you violating the law he pulls alongside you and says Pull over! And then he gets off his bike and cool, calm and collectively he just walks back like this and your little heart is thumping within you. Why are you terrified? Because you know that that guy has the authority of the law behind him. That badge he wears gives him authority to take money out of your pocket, to take your license from you. He has the authority, if he is in righteousness, to put you in prison, doesn't he? If he is in righteousness, his word stands and he knows it. He has faith in the law that the law will back him if he's in righteousness. Now in the same way, dear friends, if we are sealed with the Holy Ghost, he is our badge of authority. He is our badge of authority. And when I said stay where you are to those murderers and rapists, it was not flesh against flesh. It was flesh against spirit. Flesh against spirit. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And when I said stay where you are, I was speaking with the authority of heaven behind my mouth. Whatsoever I bind on earth will be bound on heaven, in heaven. The enemy shall not exact upon you. I was praying with this girl who was filled with demons. She was in a corner. And in walked a mature Christian woman. She'd been a Christian for 40 years. She knew her badge of authority. And when she walked in that room, I saw demons and that girl just tremble. She went like that. With fear. Demons tremble when you realize the authority that you have in Jesus Christ. And, and Satan wants you sitting on the bottom run of that ladder as an immature Christian. He wants you sitting on that motorbike with all the authority of the law behind you, but he wants you cringing in fear, staying in ignorance of who you are in Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, Stand! And that speaks of a boldness in Jesus. And I tell you, we look at the properties of salt. That salt preserves things. It gives flavor. But there's one property of salt that you don't hear too much of. Salt stings in a wound. It stings. And I tell you, when you are bold and you stand for righteousness, there is going to be a sting in the heart of the sinner. Proverbs 29 verse 27 says, An unjust man is an abomination to the just. Isn't that true? When you look at the, the perversion around, it's an abomination to those who know the righteousness of God. But it says here also, And he that is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. 
He that is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall execution. But dear church, I believe the time has come and we need to stand up and begin to reprove the unrighteousness in this nation. We need to stand in a unity of faith. And I don't mean to preach a Phariseeism to the unsaved. That is, get rid of pornography. You clean up your life. Look, we could, we could do and clean this nation up. Just do what communism does. Just shoot everyone that you don't sort of think is stand, your standard. We could clean up this nation. We could get rid of pornography. We could get rid of violence. But God's wrath could come upon the children of disobedience because of the imagination of the heart. The only thing that will save this nation is a change of heart. Genuine repentance and reprove them, rebuke them and say to them, for because of these things the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. Psalm 40, verse 1 and 2, David speaks of salvation, the joy of salvation. Psalm 40, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit and out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. Now notice in verse 3, the evangelical overflow. Notice he talks in verse 2 about the joy, or it's about salvation, and verse 3 about the joy of his salvation. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. An evangelical overflow. Now, in verse 2, the miry clay, to me, speaks of the world's sinking standard. That is, what we tolerated 20 years ago is generally accepted in today's society. Today, things that would have shocked people years ago, they hardly bat an eyelid to. The standard just sinks down like a, like a miry clay. But the rock that David speaks of in verse 2 to, to me speaks of the rock of God's righteousness. God does not change. He loves righteousness. He says, I am the Lord, I change not. And Romans chapter 3, we see where Paul speaks of the, the unregenerate mankind. He speaks of their throat being an open sepulcher. And then he sums it up by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now he's thinking, what does it mean, no fear of God before their eyes? Whatever is before your eyes will determine the steps you take. Whatever is before your eyes will determine where you, the path that you walk. If there is a great rock there or there's a dangerous animal there, you'll go that away. Now, the ungodly are not motivated by the fear of God, the reverence of God. They just go anywhere they want. But as for me, since God opened my blind eyes, I am directed by the fear of God. You see, the psalmist tells us, the unregenerate says in his heart, God has forgotten, he hides his face, he will never see it. But dear brethren, I see God in truth through the word of God. I see him as the holy creator, the creator of the sun. The flames on the sun leap out 3,000 miles at a time. I tell you, God is to be feared. And I know that God says to the ungodly, speaking of their sins, these things thou hast done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such in one as thyself. In other words, you thought that God was just like you. But I will reprove thee, saith the Lord, and put these things in order before thine eyes. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Brethren, the fear of God needs to come back to the church where we reverence God. And there are certain issues that I believe, as I said before, the church cannot remain silent on. We need to reprove. And when I say the church, I am speaking of individuals. You and I, not the hierarchy of the church, 
but you and I being salt within the community. I'll just read to you here from a, a daily reading, a little story. During World War II, an English battalion had a chaplain who was well-liked because he was what men called inoffensive. In actuality, he was a moral coward. At times, when he should have spoken out against evil and faithfully borne the reproach of Christ, he pretended he didn't hear what was being said. In time, he was transferred, and a new chaplain took his place. One day at the officers' mess, the colonel expressed himself in his usual explosive four-letter words of profanity. The new chaplain calmly stood to his feet and said respectfully, Pardon me, sir, but you would expect your men to do their duty, wouldn't you? I feel as a Christian chaplain, I must tell you that your language is an offence both to God and to man. An awful silence fell over the room. No one had ever spoken to the colonel like that before. The officer was quiet for a moment and then said, You're right, I'm sorry. Because of that chaplain's courage, the language of the whole group was improved and he was able to have a strong testimony for Jesus Christ. And tonight I'd like to touch on four issues. The first being the subject of abortion. Do you understand what the will of the Lord is on the issue of pornography? Let's turn to Psalm 139, verse 14, shall we? Psalm 139, verse 14. And if you don't know where you stand on the subject of abortion, I trust that what we're going to speak about tonight will help. This is a rather long quote from a track, but I believe it's important. I would like to give you the types of abortion so that you know what you're talking about when it comes to abortion. The first type is called dilation and curettage, or DNC. The opening of the cervix is dilated with a series of instruments to allow insertion of a curette. A sharp scraping instrument is inserted into the uterus. The fetus or the baby is then cut into pieces and scraped from the uterus wall. Bleeding is usually profuse. The operating nurse must then reassemble the parts of that child, that is, get the feet and the hands and the head and make sure nothing is left inside. Then there's the suction curette. This is a great vacuum pump where the baby is sucked from the womb and torn in bits and sucked into a jar. Then there's salt poisoning or the saline injection. This method is used after 16 weeks or 4 months when enough fluid has accumulated in the sac around the baby. A long needle is inserted through the mother's abdomen into the baby's sac. Some fluid is removed and a strong salt solution is injected in. The helpless baby swallows this poison and suffers severely. He kicks and jerks violently as he is literally being burned alive by the solution. It takes over an hour for the baby to die by this method. His outer layer of skin is completely burned off. Within 24 hours, labor is usually set in and the mother will give birth to a dead baby. Frequently, these babies are born alive. They are usually left unattended to die. However, a few have survived the ordeal due to the mercy of the hospital staff and later have been adopted. And the last one is the hysterectomy. Sorry, the hysterotomy or the caesarean section. Used mainly in the last three months of pregnancy, the womb is entered through the wall of the abdomen. The tiny baby is removed and allowed to die by neglect or sometimes killed by a direct act. Now a nurse called Susan Lindstrom, age 27, puts it this way. She says, I'm having a lot of difficulty with my feelings about late abortions and all the pain that there's so much of the time after the baby is moving. So one day, in a need to arrive at a measure of clarity, I went into the room where they kept the fetus before burning them. The fetuses before burning them. They were next to the garbage cans and paper buckets, like the take-home chicken kind. I looked inside the bucket in front of me. There was a small naked person in there floating in a bloody liquid. 
He was purple with bruises and his face had an agonised tauntness as one forced to die too early. I then took the lid off the bucket and with a pair of forceps lifted out each fetus by an arm or leg, leaving as I returned them an additional bruise on their acid-soaked bodies. Finally, I lifted out a very large fetus and read the label. Mother's name, Catherine Atkins. Doctor's name, Saul Marcus. Sex of the item, male. Time of gestation, 24 weeks or 6 months. I remembered Catherine. She was 17, a very pretty blonde girl. So, this was Master Atkins to be burned tomorrow for the sake of his mother. Now, what does science have to say? Well, it's been medically proven that the baby's heart starts beating at from 14 to 28 days after conception, usually before the mother even knows she's pregnant. By the 30th day, almost every organ has started to form. He moves his arms and legs by six weeks, and by 43 days, his brain waves can be read. By eight weeks, the baby has his very own fingerprints. He can urinate and make strong fists, and he can even feel pain. I'm going to read to you from Psalm 139. David says, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hidden from thee, when I was made in secret and intricately wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unformed, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, as when there was yet none of them. Jeremiah 1.5 says, God said, Jeremiah, before I formed thee in the womb, I knew thee. And the Bible doesn't speak as a woman being with fetus, it speaks of a woman being with child. About two years ago, someone said to me, do you know so-and-so, that new Christian, she's having an abortion. I said, you've got to be joking. I said, where's this? They said, oh, Christchurch Woman's Hospital. I immediately jumped in the car. I said, they said it was the, the abortion was to take place about 2 o'clock. It was just after 1. I tore into town, all the way to town. I said, Lord, make my mouth as a two-edged sword. Lord, use me to talk this girl out of this terrible thing. I ran up into the hospital. I get up on the second floor, went running into a room. She'd already had a pre-operation medication. And I said to her, don't go through with this thing. She just looked at me and smiled. And she said, it's all right, I'm not going through with it. She said, I just pray, God, if you don't want me to have this abortion, make Ray Comfort come up and see me. And now you cannot separate that child from that mother. You couldn't separate them. The Bible says Satan came to kill, steal and destroy. Jesus said that he came to give us life. Now the second issue I'd like to speak upon is the issue of child discipline. The Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings his mother to shame. And I believe a child left without correction is a child left without direction. This generation has been left without moral absolutes. And I have seen through the whole drug problem, and I believe this, one of the major causes of young people being in drugs is the fact that they have lacked any godly discipline when they were young. In Psalm 107 verse 17 it says, Fools because of their transgressions and iniquities are afflicted. You see, it's not the drugs that get abused, it's the people. It's people abusing their own bodies and the Bible says they're fools to do so. Why is it that they grow up so foolish? Because the Bible tells us that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. But the rod of correction will drive it far from him. And a premise must be established in Christian homes. And that is that human nature is not basically good. Human nature is basically evil. 
And you will not be able to come to terms with that premise until you've acknowledged it within your own life. You cannot say your child has got a sinful heart unless you acknowledge that you have a sinful heart. A woman came up to me while I was preaching about, I mentioned children. She said, children learn to do wrong. And I said, is that so? Well, I'd like to know who was the clown that taught my kids to lie. Who taught my kids to, to be selfish? Who taught my kids to be greedy? You see, they knew how to be greedy. They knew how to be selfish. They didn't learn it. It was deep within their nature. David said in Psalm 51, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I had to teach them to share, teach them to be kind, teach them to tell the truth. And about three or four years ago, I was up in Auckland and I was doing a talkback show on the subject of drugs with a nationally nationally known television interviewer, radio interviewer, and this is a radio talkback show. And we were getting on good, uh, fine actually, we were getting on great. And then a a, a caller rang through and she said, my son did this. I said, lady, if my son did that or said that to me, I'd give him a quick cane. And then the announcer butted in and said, you what? Like that on live radio. I said, oh, excuse me. I said, if my son talked to me like that, I'd give him a cane. He said, you'd whack your kid round the head with a piece of wood like that. He went berserk. He said, where'd you get that from? And I said, book of Proverbs. He said, Proverbs. He went berserk. Someone said to me afterwards, you exercise tremendous self-control. I did not. I was dumbfounded. Live radio and... And the interviewer going berserk, an ungodly anti-Christian woman having a go at me on the phone, and this guy about to throttle me on live radio. <laughs> and praise God, certain people rang up afterwards, and the lady came on live radio, she said, how dare you talk to your guests like that? Shame on you using emotive phrases like that. I know exactly what Mr. Comfort is saying. When we were a kid, she said, we used to have a little willow. My father took a little willow draw, uh, stick and kept it in the drawer. And if we told lies or we stole, we knew we were going to get that. And that kept us on the straight and narrow. And we respected our father for it. And that guy, I must be fair to him, he apologized twice on air and three times off air. But why is it such a hot issue? Why is child discipline such a hot issue? I believe it's because Satan knows that a child left to himself will not only bring shame to his mother, but shame to himself and shame to his country. Hitler said, into the hands of our children we place the destiny of Germany. Roman Catholics say, give me a child at the age of seven, we'll give you a Catholic for life. Friends, it's true. Train up your children with godly principles and still discipline into them and you'll have yourself a child that will not deviate from the path of righteousness. He will come back to that path, the Bible says. Praise God. And discipline does work. It doesn't make sense to the natural mind that God's ways do work. I remember my son said a word I told him not to say. It was quite a harmless word, but he was disobedient. I said, go to the wash house. And I went in there, I took a stick, and I really mean it. It hurts me as much as it hurts him. It's the catchphrase, but I hate cane in my kiss. And I went, like that, little quick hard ones. And he burst into tears, ran off to his room, and I felt terrible. I went all hot. And I left him for a couple of minutes, then took in a tissue for him to wipe his tears away. And then I went in ten minutes later, I put my arm around him and said, Son, you know why I discipline you. I correct you because I love you and I want you, to, I want you to learn right from wrong. I don't want you to grow up without respect for authority. And I prayed with him and he asked Jesus to forgive him. And then I, I let him out of his room and he apologized to his mum for what he said. And then... Uh, I was just standing there doing the dishes and I feel yank, yank on my shirt. And I turned around, it's my little son, he was only about six, and he handed me a note. And I opened the note, you know what it said? I love my dad. I just came the kid. And he says, I love my dad. You see, he could tell that my correction came from a heart of love. I only came to him because I cared for him. 
Now, there's a woman that used to live across the road from us. She wouldn't think of disciplining their, her kids. If her kids didn't want to go to school, they got lollies given to them until they wanted to go to school. She would not smack them. She wouldn't tell them off. And you know what I heard that little kid say when he was six? He held a gun at his mum. He says, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. I'm going to kill you. That's what he said to his mum. At that age, he had lost respect for the authority of his mother. Discipline correctly and you will instill respect. A woman rang me once and she was in a phone box. I could hear kids talking in the phone box. Well, she must have a whole family in the phone box. She said, Mr. Comfort, I read your book, My Friend's Dying, and I don't agree with what you said about child discipline. I said, oh, is that right? She says, hang on a minute. You kids, shut up! <laughs> Do you know that our kids are never allowed to say no to their mother? If our kids, and I don't mean say no, no, I haven't been out today or something. I mean the rebellious, no. They know if they said that, they'd be in for a cane. They are to respect their mother. And you know that if my kids don't come, when I tell them to come immediately, they know they're in for trouble. And you say, that's a bit stiff. Well, you think that's a bit stiff? Read Deuteronomy 28 or 21 verse 18 where it says, if you've got a rebellious son who's always a drunkard and he's always disobedient and he won't do what you say, you take him to the elders of, the, of Israel and they'll take him to the main gates and they'll stone him until he's dead. That's God's standard. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that ever happened, but I tell you, I bet there was no rebellion in Israel. I bet there were no rebellious teenagers in Israel because they knew that that was in the law and they respected authority. You say, I don't think my kids should come immediately. I should give them a second chance. Okay, when they're playing on the road, big truck come along. Come here, quick, son. In a minute. That happened. I, I, my kids were on the road and I thank God that I'd learnt, taught them to come immediately. There was a car coming down and says, come off the road. They immediately come off the road. And I thought, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You see, if a, a child loses respect for his parents, he will lose respect for police. He will lose respect for God. He will lose respect for all authority and he'll lose respect for himself. And when you lose respect for yourself, you turn inwardly to destroy yourself. And anybody who pushes a needle into their arm has lost respect for themselves. Look at Proverbs 13, verse 24. Proverbs 13, verse 24. It says this. He that speareth his rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastens him early. God's word uses hyperbole, statement of exaggeration. It's saying you don't really love your kid if you don't cane him. And I believe many people don't cane their kids. You know why? Because they don't like the feeling they get when they cane them. That woman, I would never came my kid up make me feel awful to do that. Well, I care enough about the eternal wealth of my children to make no notice of my feelings. The Bible tells us, Chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spear for his crying. Don't let your soul be disturbed by his crying, because the Bible says you will save his soul from hell. Correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall bring delight to thy soul. I tell you, if you do it, Children, when they grow up, they won't bring heartbreak into your family when they hit the teenage years. They'll bring joy to your soul if you bring them up God's way and not man's way. A third issue I want to speak on, I just want to speak of four, is pornography. The subject of pornography. Now, most of us have our senses exercised to discern both good and evil when it comes to pornography, but I'd like to speak on it short, briefly tonight. Many of the courts have trouble defining what pornography is, but I believe porn is summed up by this... Uh, definition of lust. The purposeful stirring of sexual desire in individuals. How do you sell unbreakable sunglasses? Hold them in front of a bulging bikini top and at least half your audience will be watching. 
And that's true. People know that. They know that to be true. And I tell my oldest son, who's now 11, I say, listen, son, you're going to hit 13, 14 soon and certain passions are going to come into your body. You're going to desire females. You're going to get imaginations, imaginations in your heart. But I say, sex is a gift of God to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage. And I tell him to read Proverbs, and this may embarrass you when I read Proverbs, but it says, let your wife be as a loving hind in a pleasant row, and let her breast satisfy thee at all times. And be there ravished always with her love. And I say to my son, Jacob, God has got a woman sorted out for you. She is your own, and you can enjoy her, and she can enjoy you. Keep yourself pure for her. For the Bible says, the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders his goings. And I say, let the fear of God keep you pure. And I have had to counsel married men who have come up to me at an altar and said, oh, oh, I've got a problem with lust. And as I probed and probed, straight into heavy porn, professing Christian, a married man, we've got to see that lust brings forth sin, and sin when it's finished brings forth death. And learn from the example with King David. The misery that was brought into his life because he transgressed the laws of God. The Bible says, whoever commits adultery, whoever commits adultery lacks understanding. Can a man take fire to his bosom and be not burned? And in these days, Satan is opening the sewers of hell and young people are being bombarded with sex and pornography. We must warn them to keep themselves pure and tell them, for this cause the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. Do you know that in Australia last year, in blue movies, that is the cassettes, the video cassettes, they netted $135 million profit with pornographic videos. And last year, in Manila, where they didn't have pornography, they let it in for a nine-day period. you know how many people turned out up to see those filthy movies over a nine-day period? Four point one million people turned up to see that. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 30, there is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet they're not washed from their filthiness. And maybe you don't allow pornography into your home. But just last week or the week before, I saw a certain weekly woman's magazine with words and pictures in it, a New Zealand weekly woman's magazine, with words and pictures in it that you would find written on a public toilet. I tell you, it made me want to spit. I saw it on a plane going back to Christchurch. And if you have got that magazine in your home, I just say, why don't you rip that page out, those pages out? And I won't repeat what was in there. It just makes me want to spit. You didn't do that in a church. Rip it out and send it to the editor and say, I, I object to this sort of content in this magazine and I'll not purchase your magazine as long as you put this sort of filth in it. Every stand for righteousness reminds the sinner that he has a conscience. And my blood boils when professing Christian artists come to this country, like one did two weeks ago, and comes to our Christchurch town hall. I don't know if he was in Auckland, but he came to our town hall and he used filthy language in his songs. And he said to the audience, I hope none of you mind me using the word S-H-I-T in my songs. And he went, no, go ahead. And he is a professing Christian toured our country as a professing Christian. Oh, I pray God if I was ever in a concert like that, that God would give me the boldness to stand up and say, I object to that filth and warn them that for this cause the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. Turn to Romans 1 verse 24 and we'll draw this thing to a close. Romans 1 verse 24 and I want to look at this last of these issues that I believe the church needs to stand on. I guess there's many more, but these are three issues that I have on my heart. And this is a super hot issue of homosexuality. 
And every time I speak of this in public, I either get threatened or guys get angry. There's all sorts of stirs go on. Why do people get angry when it comes to the subject of homosexuality? Even people who aren't homosexuals, they get angry. I believe it's because Satan knows that if any sin is abhorrent to God, it is the sin of homosexuality and it's a sin which brings about the swift judgment of God upon any nation. Why do they get angry? Well, why do, why do I get angry when I'm arguing with my wife and all of a sudden I start seeing that I'm wrong? If I start saying, oh, I'm in the wrong, I can either come in repentance and say, sorry, love, I'm wrong. Please forgive me. I can come in humility or I can sniff, stiffen my neck in pride and say, ah, oh, shut up and slam the door and go out in anger. That's how many people deal with conviction. When the light of God's word begins exposing the guilt of their heart, they deal with their conviction with anger instead of with repentance. Is homosexuality a sickness? Well, if it's a sickness, why do homosexuals want to remain sick? Let's read one, chapter 1 of Romans, verse 26. God says about homosexuality, this cause, God gave them up to vile affections, for even their women did exchange the natural use for that which is against nature, and likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was fitting. You see, when I was a kid, we didn't call it gay. There's nothing gay about homosexuality. The word queer is far more close to the truth. God says it is a perversion. It is a perversion. And Gay Pride Week tries to bring pride into something that is shameful. It is shameful. Homosexuality is something that is learned. And years ago I was caught up in, a, in an exercising session with this guy. He fell on the floor and started groaning and a demon began to manifest. And we said, what is your name? And the name came out, Cora. And, the name, and, the, and this demon and that guy said, I'm a homosexual spirit. I've been in here for 11 years and I'm not coming out. A homosexual spirit. And guys that continue in homosexuality run the risk of moving into demonic possession. And that guy was put in prison for child molesting sometime later. A man in his mid-50s came to see me a few years ago. He said, as he hung his head low in shame, a man of 55, 60 years old, he said, I'm married with three or four children. He said, about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I went to see a minister of traditional religion and I said, I'm a homosexual. Can Christianity do anything for me? And that professing man of God said, nope, you're a homosexual now. You'll be one in 10 years, 20 years. You might as well just accept it for life. That's not what my Bible says. It says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The Bible says he's able to save to the uttermost them that come to God by him. And I have seen homosexuals transformed. When we were working on our film, I went up to a certain secular radio station in Christchurch and I was in a studio with a young lady. Her name was Lee. We spent an hour in a studio together. Lee was a nice lady with hair down to about there, very nice blue jeans, and we got on good. And, uh, and then sometime later, someone said, uh, here, Lee's become a Christian. And I said, really good. And then I bumped into Lee at Radio Rima, and Lee leaned across and said to me, oh, I've got a bit of a problem. I've got to get worked out. I've got to go into another city just for a while. I said, oh, well, God will help you there. And about a week later, someone came up to me in the square and said, uh, hey, you know that Lee became a Christian? I said, yes, yeah, great for her, isn't it? He said, not her, he. I said, what are you talking about? And it turned out that Lee was a he, not a she. Lee was a transsexual who was taking hormonal tablets and developed breasts and was about to have the big operation when God got hold of him and transformed him. And then I was stuck in a kind of dilemma. I thought, goodness me, I had to get my thinking straight. Lee with long blonde hair 
a he? Oh, how will I greet her, him, next time I see it? What will I say? Hi, Lee, good to see you. Oh, hello, Lee, nice to see you again. What will my attitude be? I was really thinking thoughts like that. How do I treat him? Is it gently or a... And I... uh, I was sitting in church about a month later and I looked across the church and I thought, I know those eyes, where are I seeing those eyes? And it was Lee. And he was sitting there and he had a beard on his chin. His hair was cut short, he was wearing men's clothes. He came up to me, I thought, this is it. And he grabbed me by the hand, me a firm handshake and a beer hug and thumped me on the back. And I said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. God had taken the unclean, renewed a right spirit within that guy and he was transformed. He's now married to a female and that had child. Praise God. Isn't that great? There is a key for the homosexual or any person to become a Christian and that is to hate the sin of homosexuality. When I was up above Brisbane, a guy came to me, a guy who had been a Christian for eight years, he said, Ray, he says, all those desires are coming back, I'm doing everything right. He says, I'm reading, I'm going to church, I'm praying, but I'm getting all these desires back. And I thought for that, I says, hey, do you hate homosexuality? And he deliberated for about 30 seconds. I don't think I do. The Bible says in Proverbs 8 verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate. And I believe the church of God needs to stand up and proclaim that clear message of repentance and warn them, rebuke them, reprove them and say, for these things the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. And I'm going to say something that might sound harsh but it is not meant to condemn you. I just want to motivate you. Maybe you don't feel the pulse of evangelism coming from the heart of God and yet you console yourself that you are in the body of Christ because you worship the Lord. Remember this, that Judas kissed Jesus and said, Master, Master. Jesus said, Why do you call me Master and do not the things that I tell you? The church of God needs to coagulate, to come together with a unity of purpose and proclaim the gospel of salvation. If you're not a Christian tonight, I want to say that God has provided a means of your forgiveness, a means of your salvation. The wrath of God is going to come upon the children of disobedience. God has appointed a day in which He'll judge the world in righteousness. And you may be looking down your hooter and saying those dirty homosexuals. There's no such thing as clean sin. All our righteousness are as filthy rags in His sight. All our righteousness, our good works are filthy rags in the sight of God. There's none clean in God's sight. He is a holy God. But God has provided the umbrella of the righteousness of Christ that we might hide in that umbrella and be saved from the reign of God's wrath. And tonight, if you repent and give your heart to Jesus Christ, friend, you will escape the damnation that is to come to this world. You'll escape the wrath that's to come. Now, maybe tonight you don't know what a Saviour is. Maybe you've celebrated Christmas and said, under us this day, a Saviour is born. You don't even know what a Saviour is. Many people don't. Many non-Christians don't know what a Saviour is. Do you know when the Titanic left on its maiden voyage, not too many people were interested in lifeboats. Everybody knew the Titanic was unsinkable. The thought that the Titanic could sink was unthinkable. Nobody ever thought that. In fact, they planned that boat so that it didn't even have proper lifeboats. Some of the lifeboats were ornamental and there were only enough lifeboats for 1,200 people and there was 2,200 people on board that boat because there was no way the Titanic could sink but the silly thing sunk, didn't it? And all those people that were dancing and singing, making merry, when that thing began to sink, they began to see lifeboats as lifeboats indeed. And friend, as you begin to see that you're going to sink into the very jaws, the black jaws of death, and you are going to be lost for eternity, 
then you'll call out for the Saviour. And until you see that you're going to sink, friend, you won't be concerned about a Saviour. And I would like to come down tonight if I could point you non-Christians out and I'd like to grab you by the shirt collar and I would like to shake you into reality. But you know what would happen? You'd get offended. You'd never, ever go back to that church. Ever. But I tell you, if you die in your sins and end up standing before the great white throne of God and terror fills your heart as you stand before the God whom you've offended, you'll say, why didn't that preacher come down from that pulpit? Why didn't he take me by the shirt collar and shake me out of my apathy and my pride? Oh, friend, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God has commended His love towards you. And that while you're getting your sin, Christ died for you. He died for me. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever trusts in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Tonight God puts before you a way of life and a way of death. He says, Why will you die? Why do you run it? Hell is over heaven and reject heaven is over hell. And the Bible tells us why the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God's hand is against the proud but his ears are open to the cries of the humble and God says humble yourself and repent. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Friend, tonight is your night to yield your life to Jesus Christ. Put down your weapons of hostility. Soften your heart to God and cry out, God, be merciful to me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew with me a right spirit. And you'll find that He is faithful to conquer.